Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Welcome to the Window Jump Podcast. My name is Mike Lewis. This week's episode was recorded with Alyssa Orlando. I caught up with Alyssa after a dance class. She's an avid dancer and also an avid jumper. Alyssa just moved back to the U.S. from four years of living abroad on the African continent. Before that, Alyssa was a consultant at a premier consulting firm you've probably heard of called McKinsey. And in our conversation, we touch on all of that. What she's learned from dance, how she thinks about her career, the jumps she's made, and what on paper is going from a dream job for just about anybody into something totally different and the unknown and why she did it, where she's going, what she thinks about it. This is a very candid interview. It's probably one of my favorite interviews because we really go across the spectrum of emotions. And she shares what it really means to be vulnerable when making a jump. So Alyssa does us all a service, I think, in being this honest and being so open. And I think because of that, there's something we can all uh, grab and take with us from the conversation, uh, particularly around how she thinks about her career, but more broadly about her life. I also wanted to let you know that the paperback edition of When to Jump, the book, has just come out. If you haven't made the jump to buying a copy, see what I did there? Now is a perfect time. You can find it at whentojump.com forward slash book. That's the paperback edition out now. I hope you'll buy it and I hope you'll enjoy it. Two other quick shout outs to Becca, who's a longtime listener of the show and is making her jump and also having her birthday right around now. Congrats, Becca. Love to see where you go with being a coach. Good luck with that. Corey in Huntington Beach, who is leaving his dream job from a photography place to go out and and chase his dream. His Instagram is uh, the.lens.guru. Check him out. Congrats to both of you. More on that later. But before I get too further on any of that from our community, and without any further ado, I'm going to take you out to a very lively conversation right now alongside Alyssa Orlando after a dance performance. Welcome to the When to Jump podcast. I am joined here with my uh, guest this week, Alyssa Orlando. We are outside of a dance studio where Alyssa was just dancing, and I have the good luck of interviewing her in person here outside the studio. If you hear those noises, uh, there's other uh, troops still going on, and Alyssa is kind enough to join me here. Alyssa, thanks so much for joining me on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So you are a jumper in just about every sense of the word. And I think we probably want to start, for those who don't know, uh, you just came back from Africa. Mm -hmm. Can you describe the the years you spent in Africa and what exactly you were doing? So I spent four years in sub-Saharan Africa, specifically Rwanda and Kenya, and I was working on building their on-demand economy. So 
My first job was running a food delivery company similar to a Seamless or an Uber Eats in Rwanda. And then I was head of operations for Uber East Africa. And then I ran my own consultancy helping to develop investor materials for early stage startups across the continent. And I think what led me to that journey was just a love of the hustle. I think in East Africa, there's this beautiful, beautiful hustle and vibrancy um, in the colors that people wear, in the sounds that you hear on the street, and the hunger that people have to make an extra dollar. And that's really what gravitated me to that environment. So in normal speak for the non-business person, what what exactly were you interested in? I know you have some interests around this topic of taking a jump and what does that look like for people in the workforce today and, and in the future. But what element did, uh, did the, the theme of jumping play in going to Africa? Hmm. So I think so much of the decisions that I've made in my life have been influenced by what opportunities can't I miss as opposed to what path should I continue to follow. And when I reflected on my life, and specifically my 20s, so I'm 27 currently, um, and I think the 20s is just such a beautiful time in which you're between families is how I describe it. So you have sort of moved on from your immediate family and they're all living their own life, but you haven't yet established a family of your own. And so to me, like moving to an emerging market and really, really living outside of the United States for an extended period of time was just a life experience that I wanted to have. And this unique experience of being in my 20s and being in between families was the time to live that experience. When you say, uh, you know, the 20s is such a unique time, does that does that take away, you know, our listeners who are not in their 20s and their 30s or 40s or 50s or, or who do have... Mm-hmm more generally have families of their own have own responsibilities are they able to jump to places like africa did you ever see that or what what would you say to those folks i think the people who i saw who had those established lives and still lived in a place like nairobi or a place like kigali uh actually had i think a much more centered experience and it was something frankly that i was pretty envious of whereby, you know, on Sunday, for example, we would all go to brunch at these similar restaurants, and I would be with these incredible people from all over the world. You know, you'd have friends from the country that you were living in, but also from Asia and Europe and other parts of the Americas and et cetera. And, you know, that was your Sunday brunch, right? Like this amalgamation of incredibly interesting and accomplished people from all over the world. But I think there was a part of me that was still incredibly jealous of the people who were having brunch with their families, right? And like their spouses and their children. And I think you 100% can live in a different environment if you have that more established life and in a way that can almost add that additional richness because you have the newness of spontaneity and exposure with the comfort of being around your loved ones. So you really can have it all. I'd like to think so. <laughs> and, um, but I do I actually want to go back to a point you mentioned earlier when you when you think of 
taking jumps, not as what path should I stay on, but what opportunities can't I miss? Mm-hmm. How did that, that's an, I've never really, I've never heard a perspective framed in that way. Is, is that something you came up with yourself? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so when I think about my life, I do tend to segment it into what do I want at different phases. So when I think about what beautiful opportunities life presents, I think about what do I genuinely want to live and experience at different times within my life. And I think living abroad was something that I absolutely wanted to experience within that time. Just like I think, you know, proving that I can build something on my own and proving that, frankly, I can create intergenerational wealth is something that's going to be important when I look at like the next five or 10 years as well. And before you left for Africa, you were a consultant at McKinsey, Mm -hmm. which is, for those who don't know it, kind of the the creme de la creme of <laughs> management consulting firms and kind of mm-hmm. of what many folks aspire to go do with their lives if they want starting out in business, even to progress in a career. How difficult was that mm-hmm. that move? Because not many people pack up their bags from Washington, D.C. and McKinsey and Company mm-hmm. and say to your boss and your family and your friends, okay, I'm moving to Rwanda. I will be very honest about my experience with McKinsey. That's actually the least happy I've been in my entire life. So at McKinsey or frankly, like any elite consulting firm, part of the model is that on average, you travel four days out of five days in the work week. So what that means is that you're away from the people who you actually really care about 80% of your week, which to me was frankly unacceptable. So... I felt really out of control at McKinsey, whereby I had no control over which location I was going to, what client I was working on, and therefore what issues I was working on on a day-to-day basis, the individuals who I was on a team with. So that actually manifested itself in me taking control in unhealthy ways in my life. So I became really over-reliant on the loved ones in my life. Again, being entirely honest, I was bulimic for that period because it was an opportunity for me to control my size. So I think when external people look at the decisions that I've made, they view moving to Africa as a risk. But to me, um, staying at McKinsey was actually the greatest risk that I could have taken for my physical and emotional health. Was that decision something that you knew on day one uh, of the firm or was that over time, was that kind of, I find sometimes in my life, the hardest decisions, they they sneak up on me until it becomes so clear in my gut that I have to change. Mm-hmm. And whether that's jump to a new job or whether that's change a, a habit or mm-hmm. or seek help for something, was that, how did, how did you find that decision to crystallize? Mm-hmm. I think it was apparent relatively early on that I needed to leave. Uh, When I was a summer intern, I mean, they treat you like gold. They give you everything that you don't even know that you want. And I distinctly remember that one of the first experiences we had, we did a summer retreat to Atlantic City. And when I got home to D.C., 
I started crying because the excess that I witnessed in terms of expenditures and just frankly like privilege just like really really disturbed me and so I think I knew relatively early on that this wasn't a good fit uh however to be totally honest I I needed the money and so someone offering me a $90,000 salary with a $15,000 signing bonus right out of school was something I couldn't refuse especially because I come from a family that makes, on average, like $60,000 a year, so money was a really real consideration. Uh, and part of the reason that I felt an obligation to stay was because of that signing bonus. When I under when I graduated undergrad, I had, like, no money in my bank account. And I think when people talk about when to jump or when people talk about, uh, you know, taking these risks in your life, financial considerations are something that, people sometimes take for granted. And I remember in my in my first year, like I genuinely, genuinely felt like I couldn't leave the firm because if I left, I would have to pay back that $15,000 signing bonus plus taxes. And I, I genuinely didn't have that money in my bank account. I would have had to take out a loan to pay that back. Uh, so that's something I think about going forward is I always, always want to be in a position in which I have financial independence and I'm not dependent on, I'm not bound in any financial means that prevents me from making the decisions that I want in my life. Which is so interesting when you then layer on the fact that you did you take a huge jump and you moved to Africa and you go to uh, a series of different startup opportunities which are super risky, but it mm -hmm. sounds like those two things aren't mutually exclusive. Like you can, you can be financially um, shrewd and sound and make decisions that are like really smart and that set you up for future financial success and freedoms and also jump which I think a lot of people might think are are not possible to both achieve absolutely for me a key part of that was having a, a number a number at the onset in which when I achieved it I knew I would jump so at the time at which I had $50,000 saved, that's when I made the move to Sub-Saharan Africa. At the time at which I had $100,000 saved, that's when I made the move to being self-employed. And from the onset, I had these numbers in my mind that when I achieved them, I would make that jump. So having those very, very tangible touch points that you hold yourself accountable to and communicating those touch points to others was a very important part of my journey. And those numbers can start out, I mean, that sounds like overwhelming maybe for some folks that might be like, well, I could never save that much. But I think it's important to, to hone in on the message and the point is not you need this much money to make your jump. You, it can be a lot smaller. The point is you just set that goal, right? Absolutely. That number can be, I have, you know, I had a lot of friends who were freelance journalists and photographers, and that number for them was, I need $600 to buy new video equipment. And as soon as you have $600 in the bank, you buy that new video equipment, you start freelancing. Yeah, I think that's such a, such a valid point. So walk us through, you get to Africa, and when you land in Rwanda, what happens next? Uh, so I actually landed in Nairobi first because that was the big hub of what was going on in the social enterprise and the startup space. I originally thought that I wanted to work in social enterprise because it was this beautiful sweet spot of 
giving back and making money, which to the point about having it all sounds like truly the sweet spot. Um, I'm a big believer in, you know, there's this Bible verse, Luke 12, 48, that says to whom much is given, much is expected. And I really want to live my life in that way. So social enterprise seemed like that sweet spot. But I think, so originally I actually worked for a sanitation company in the slums of Nairobi. Very quickly, I realized that especially coming from this high-paced corporate world that was just too slow-paced for me. So my roommate, um, who to this day is one of my best friends, uh, she and I would always try out the new restaurants in Nairobi. And so we realized we had this mutual love of food. Uh, So she was like, I know that you think you want to be in the social enterprise space, but I actually think you should work in the food and hospitality space. So when she got a promotion, I actually interviewed to take her job, and that's what got me into food delivery in Rwanda. So uh, I moved to Rwanda. When I touched down, I was, at the time, I think 22 years old, a white American woman, aka have zero points of credibility, (laughs) uh, and had this team of 25 people, many of whom were, you know, 40 and above, Rwandese, male And it was really a challenge for me to build that credibility amongst my team. So my initial few months and, well, a few weeks especially, was just spent listening to what is relevant in people's lives, what is relevant on their minds in terms of what they love about their job and don't want to be changed and what they want, what opportunities they think exist to make their professional lives a little bit better. So it sounds like there was a educational component for sure to this jump and it came from from listening. You know is that is that a transferable takeaway as you think of other jumps that people might be taking? Absolutely. I think a key part of a jump is going into a world that you're incredibly passionate about but haven't lived in in the recent past. To be successful in that new world, it takes having the humility to listen to people who are already living it, like that is their day-to-day, so that you can quickly integrate into your new reality. And what brought you out of that role and into the next? What was the the jump that followed? Frankly, uh, the reason that I left Rwanda is I was deported. (laughs) So... The Rwandan government thought that I worked for the CIA. Unfortunately, I did not have the benefits of the protection of the U.S. government as I was not a spy. <laughs> uh, but it was this, it was this weird time in which I loved my life and I loved my job. And I mean, what could be better, right? You're working with a group of fun, young, hip people. You're working with a bunch of fun restaurant owners in a sector that everyone loves. Everybody loves tech. Everybody looks, loves food. It was this beautiful intersection. Uh, and so I was really, really reticent to leave. And it was only at the point in which multiple people communicated to me that my physical security was at risk, that I was willing to move. And even then, I think I was unwilling to admit that it was really over. So rather than move back to the U.S., I moved to neighboring Nairobi where I had lived before. I wanted to continue to work in... Uh, Africa's tech sector because I felt like it was a way to respectfully contribute to the continent. So rather than work in a very patronizing way in the NGO or philanthropic sectors, it was a way to acknowledge that there was this growing middle class and there is this 
vibrancy of the urban environment of the continent. So I went to work for Uber subsequently. And uh, that wasn't a uh, misspoken sentence there. You heard that right. Uh, The guest on this show was perceived to be a spy by a foreign (laughs) government. And so you landed, we talked before the interview about this, from what I understand, you landed in Nairobi with not a whole lot set. You didn't have a job place. So what was, what happens from there? No. So I I think this is the importance of being a good friend and having good friends. So when I was in Rwanda, and I was frankly really scared, I called one of my best friends who I knew from college and said, look, like this is happening. I need to come to Nairobi. Will you house me for a period of time? And she said, yeah, yeah, no problem. She was, uh, she's an angel and was doing some work on the refugee crisis. So she was in Somalia. So she was like, and I'd lived with her in Nairobi. So she was like, just go to our old apartment and we'll figure it out from there. So I show up at her room and this woman has a bouquet of flowers waiting for me. Three different chocolate bars, all of which were my favorites. (laughs) And a handwritten note that says, welcome home, Alyssa. I think that was like the most beautiful, meaningful welcome that I could have possibly asked for. Uh, But yeah, I did. (laughs) I didn't have a house. I didn't have a job. I I had nothing, you know. Um, And so I actually slept on her wicker couch with nothing but an airline blanket for two weeks. Um, my employer said, look, I'm sorry this happened to you, Rwanda, but you have two options. You can either quit or you can continue with us, but in Ghana. And at that point I'd moved so much. And I really think if you move too much, you become a sociopath because you don't have people in your life who've known you well enough to hold you accountable to when you're acting like a terrible person. Uh, so I knew that I didn't, I didn't want to move again. That was definitive. Um, And so, yeah, I think at that point I just started recruiting for different positions. Very ironically, this gave me the strength to stand up for myself in different employment situations because it meant that I was unemployed. And I think everyone's always, always terrified of being fired or being let go and being unemployed. And once you've had that experience once, you realize it's actually not. And you come from enough privilege to be able to get additional jobs you realize is actually not the end of the world and ironically that's given me a lot of freedom of mind subsequently yeah and i think that people might say well that's that's nice for you to say but you know i can't afford to be unemployed but i think that it's more like taking a chance to like take a breather whether that's like finding a job to pay the bills for the time being or like saying i'm going to take two months and then get back to it but but I think there there is wiggle room to create that openness to kind of air things out, as I like to say. Completely. And I, I am the, one of the most money-conscious people you will meet. There was a one-week period in which I didn't get paid. And what I mean by being okay with being fired or being unemployed is realizing that when you have a certain level of edu- education or when you have a certain level of experience, in the event that you lose your job, you're able to find another way to make money. It may not be your dream job. It may not be the way that you saw your life playing out. 
But at the end of the day, when you need to support yourself and your family, there's a means to do so. Yeah, to put it another way, I remember someone saying you should have one thing you can do with your hands or something like that, or one thing you can do with your body that like, you know, whether it's bus tables or make soup or, or, or create pottery, like that can get you through those patches. And I think, I think that's, that's right. Completely. Something that will pay the bills when you need to, because as soon as you know that that's in your back pocket, and as soon as you know that that's a safety that you can employ, that, has subsequently given me the confidence to take the risks that will lead me to my euphoria. All right. And so as we think about you and and being led to that euphoria, or jumping rather, describe leaving Africa and what that was like. What you, you know, what were you thinking? How was that to, to finish one chapter? You were there four years. Mm-hmm. And and what brought you you know to the you know to the to the idea that okay it's time for something something else and and the next chapter because a lot of people I think could operate especially with expats people living abroad or or just people working jobs they know how to work it's it's hard inertia is a real thing it's hard to stop it was incredibly scary to think about moving home so I'm currently in graduate school. And a big reason for me to go to graduate school is to have a soft landing upon moving back to the U.S., which is not something people think about when you think about moving back to your home country. That being said, I had a reputation in the continent, specifically within the tech sector. I had the amazing opportunity to work with some of the leading startups that were raising some of the biggest Series A, B, C rounds on the continent. I spoke at a series of conferences. I was seen as a thought leader in the space. Moving back to the U.S., I had no reputation. I have no reputation. So it was, it was incredibly scary for me to think about doing that. But I knew that I needed to because, A, like there was always a credibility issue of me working as a white American in sub-Saharan Africa. I... I'm not African. And so there was always a question, rightly so, as to whether or not my voice should be the voice that was articulating the direction that the tech scene on the continent should move in. So I think that was one reason that encouraged me to move back. And the second reason that encouraged me to move back is, one, I I keep a gratitude journal. So every day I write down something that I'm grateful for. And the themes that kept coming up were around family and friends. And... The reality is that the friends and family that I'm closest to live in America. So I wanted to be closer to the friends and family that I was closest to, regardless of where my professional life had developed. So as we we've you know brought everyone up to speed with where your life is now, um, I want to end with two pieces, maybe a lightning round, if you will. <laughs> one, number one. Or maybe three pieces, because I do want to end with dance, considering we're in a dance <laughs> arena. And I hope everyone's been able to follow along on the story as we still are outside the, the music and the laughter of, of a dance floor nearby. But number one, you, you've you told me before, uh, we, we started the interview, that two people you would love to meet, CEO of Costco and Chris <laughs> Jenner. Can you briefly tell us why for each? Absolutely. So... 
I grew up in middle class America. My uh, household income was around $60,000. And we love our Costco. I think Costco to me is a company that I admire so, so much because it's made understated luxury or understated quality, I should say, accessible to every American. I really, really respect that. So I at the same time, um, they're known for having very generous labor policies. So what I want to do subsequently is focus on uh, labor policies and what do worker protections look like in the 21st century. And I feel like Costco really is a model for how you can do good and do well, which is a dynamic that I'm consistently skeptical of. So that's why I'd love to interview the CEO of Costco. <laughs> and then this Chris Jenner. Oh, let me tell you, I love the Kardashians. And I think that Kris Jenner, despite operating in fields that are typically not respected by elite society, of like operating in this influencer realm, has unabashedly been a wild success in terms of building several hundred million dollar brands. And that deserves to be respected. She deserves to be respected as one of the leading businesswomen of our generation. So I would love to have a chat with Chris. Hopefully we can make that happen. <laughs> Yeah, and that's another thing. There's probably a lot of ideas swirling in all of the listeners' heads right now and a lot of questions, comments. <laughs> this has been a wide-ranging interview, to say the least. We'll put this in the show notes, but you can definitely address a question to Alyssa through our comment field on the website, whentojump.com. Particularly if you know the CEO of Costco or Chris Jenner, that would be a real two twofer, as we say. But if you do have thoughts, I think that you've raised a lot of good points and those two folks for very different reasons are, are incredibly compelling. Um, you touched on this before, but talk a bit about where your focus area is now and, um, and, and, and where you see yourself, you know, in, if we look down the road, five, 20 years, 25 years. I think we've seen this amazing evolution in corporate America, whereby if you looked at the late 20th century, business leaders were really, really scared of unions. They viewed them as a legitimate party in managerial decisions. And unfortunately, specifically in big tech, so I live in San Francisco, so tech is part of the daily conversation. Corporate tech has found a way to offload uncertainty from the corporate balance sheet to the balance sheet of individual workers, specifically contractors. I think this is a trend that's extremely concerning, especially as my dad was an independent contractor um, and I've been an independent contractor. So it's, a, it's an issue that's very, very near and dear to my heart. So in terms of what I'd like to do immediately, I would love to work with different law firms that are doing these class action suits to assemble classes of workers who we believe are misidentified as contract workers when they're when they should be recognized as full-time workers who are entitled to 401k matches and health insurance and paid time off. I think when I look at my life in the next 15 to 20 years, it's an incredibly ambitious statement to say, but I would love to be the glorious dynam of labor whereby you have a specific platform in the case of Gloria Steinem, it was Miss Magazine, but have some sort of platform that pays the bills, if you will, that allows me to give a voice to people who may not have a voice otherwise. I think that 
when people are trying to make money and are doing everything right in terms of putting in the work, we should have the ability within American society and within the global society to transfer wealth from the capital to labor class. That's the issue that I'd really like to dedicate my life to. <laughs> well, better end this interview so you can get going <laughs> on that. Uh, you know, and I'm going to throw one more plug out there. Alyssa and I are coming together to co-chair a uh, first annual conference together in and around. It'll probably be uh, in Palo Alto uh, in connection with or association with in some way or another Stanford University uh, in uh, just a few months on the future of work, tackling some of these issues, uh, thinking about what it means to work as we continue to see you know, the workforce and the workplace changing. So uh, again, if you're interested, shoot us a note. We can give you more information when that uh, the details come together. But if you'd like to hear Alyssa, she's going to be keynoting that alongside myself. And we are very much looking forward to seeing uh, part of the When to Jump community come out. That'll probably be, we're looking at early March 2019. Uh, but more info on that. And I want to more info on that to come. I want to end lastly with what can we take from dance, given that we're outside a, a dance floor in everything we do? Jumps, not jumps, but w- what can we take from, from dance in our lives? I feel like the best dancers are not necessarily the most talented, but those who demonstrate the most enthusiasm. <laughs> so I think what we can take away is it's not all about talent. It's about attitude. And the positivity that we bring to life just makes others gravitate towards you, whether it's on the dance floor and in the boardroom. <laughs> oh, I love that. Well, we'll leave it there. Alyssa Orlando, thank you for going off the dance floor just for a minute <laughs> to share your story with us. I know our community appreciates it, and I, I appreciate you being here today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Alyssa, and I hope that you can also join us if you're out in the Bay Area for our upcoming conference on the future of work and what the workplace will look like, how we think about jobs and work and tech and all of that stuff. So more details to come. We'll definitely give you a heads up on the podcast. So stay tuned for more info. Send us a message if you have thoughts. You can also reach out to Alyssa by sending us a message from whentojump.com, and we'd be happy to connect you to her team. For more on all things jumping, you know where to find When to Jump, whentojump.com. You can also find links to purchase the newly released When to Jump paperback edition, whentojump.com forward slash book. It is awesome. I'm quite biased, but it really is a great new edition of the same classic you know and love. We've also got a newsletter that comes out monthly. You can sign up for that from the website. You can follow us across social media at when to jump. Send us your thoughts, your comments. We love hearing from you. Thank you again, Becca and Corey, for reaching out. Best of luck to both of you in your upcoming jumps. And if you've got a jump, please send it along. We want to hear it. Send them in. That's it for this episode. Again, thank you so much for joining me. My name is Mike Lewis, and that is a wrap. I'll see you next week. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.